Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, my, my friend. Blue run right here. I'm Great on gin. I thought we were instructed to have gin today. I thought oh, I was, we're, oh, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. But I just, you know, because we're so happy about Blue Run, I just always feel like. Yeah, Mary Beth, you're not in on this joke yet. I don't have any Blue Run yet. So Brian teases me every episode. Now, now our, our loyal viewers, of which, by the way, there are many. Thank you so much for your response to our latest video. I think we almost immediately went into triple digits with it. So thank you. But our loyal viewers will note I'm a little bit dressed up today, a little bit, uh, you know, up in the game a little bit because we have a very distinguished guest today, uh, Alex. We have the Honorable Mary Beth Long. And those aren't just words. They were earned through 17 years as an intelligence and defense professional. She is and remains and will always remain, I guess, based on the nature of history, the first uh, Senate-confirmed female Assistant Secretary of Defense of the United States. Bravo. And she also is an actual spy. As you know, I'm more of a poser. You know, I was a Central Intelligence Agency officer for a long time, but I was kind of back at the dull end of the spear. Mary Beth, on the other hand, was out at the front of the spear. So before we're done, we will definitely be getting Mary Beth's take on James Bond, who was the best James Bond. A little bit of a controversy in our show. Mary Beth, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And you were you were so at the far end of the spear that the feathers looked like they were ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop there. Keep roasting. This is great for me. <laughs> only only because only because they actually were ahead of me. Uh, I'm 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 in put in mind of a line from some movie right behind me, huh, Lieutenant? So in any event, welcome, Mary Beth. Mary Beth has had a long and storied career uh, with the U.S. government, and after uh, her government service has been continuing to serve influentially as uh, someone working with some of our best and most important allies. She's been a professor. She's really done it all. Uh, Mary Beth, tell us, uh, tell us what your thoughts are. Oh, one thing I have to mention, along with her other great distinguished roles, Mary Beth served as the uh, head of the group uh, for NATO that was uh, working on nuclear policy uh, in the Bush administration. So I'm sure Mary Beth will have plenty of things to say about the Ukraine and Putin. But Mary Beth, why don't you uh, talk to us for a minute? Tell us also what your cocktail of choice is for today. Oh, my cocktail of choice was actually, a, it's slightly in the process of elimination. So since <laughs> we were going to talk a little bit about NATO and Europe, et cetera, I normally go for a pins cup this time of year. Uh -huh with a wonderful, wonderful wink, which is hard to find in the United States these days, and a good solid garden cucumber. But um, in deference to our French allies, we went with, in my particular case, the French 75, because I mm. like mine with vodka. Um, I know that uh, apparently at least one of you goes with gin. And when I do gin, I've got to do Hendrix. Fair enough. I too have chosen, and how's this for unusual? I've chosen French. I have a French gin. I am drinking G-Vine, which is a French gin made from grapes. I didn't it know feels, the French made gin. There you yeah, go. If, it feels like that's a potential resumption of the war between uh, France and the UK. That, that, uh, that's it's a, Entente cordiale demonstrated by my choice of cordial. Do they Fair. make pens? So, 
I love PIMS. Um, <laughs> I, I do like PIMS very much. Uh, I think with PIMS, it doesn't really matter. I would put vodka in PIMS, actually. I think the taste of gin interferes a bit too much with PIMS. But um, I, for, if I'm having a martini, definitely gin. There is no such thing as a vodka martini. So I'm uh, with Mary Beth on the right side of history. I have vodka in mine, and I love a good vodka martini, regardless of what Alex says. He's been unable to convert me with many attempts at gin over the years, but, you know, we'll keep trying. As long as it's not Russian vodka, because we all have to make Oh, it. you're on yes, message. Ma'am. We did that already. We, ah, we talked okay. about the end of Russian vodka for us. Uh, it's not much of a loss, to be honest. Yeah. Well, but we did we did drop a caveat, Mary Beth. You'll you'll recognize that language as a lawyer. We are willing to drink Russian vodka if somebody can point us to and listeners, you're still on the hook for this, uh, a Russian vodka not made in Russia, but made by Russian expatriates in a good part of the world. People who got out of Russia because they couldn't stand Putin. I'm all for those Russians. You know, my objection isn't with the Russian people per se. It's with the regime. If there is someone out there making Russian vodka in protest at Putin, I will buy some. Absolutely. We'll get cases on our way. Maybe, Mary Beth, you can uh, you can find us someone like that. I know your connections in the expat world are extensive. I don't know anyone who's making Russian without being in the Russian territory vodka, but I will take that on as homework from this assignment. Well, if well, you can you. nail it, it'd be great because I we I get corrected on everything else. I mispronounce a Dutch name. We get feedback up that you wouldn't believe how much feedback. <laughs> well, when we did a call out for this, we did a call out for some Russian vodka, not from Russia. Birds chirping in the distance. Crickets. Crickets. Alternatively, listeners, a uh, business opportunity for you. Somebody yeah, should true. Uh, go do that. I'm sure there's plenty of people who are in the diaspora who could do that. Now, before we get to Alex's great story today and Mary Beth's uh, many stories, Uh, I have to say, ladies and gentlemen, viewers of the podcast, through the magic of technology, Alex and I are in our home studios, and yet it's Sunday night. Tomorrow night, we're appearing live in New York, and so we're in New York right now, so figure out how we're doing that. Most importantly, tomorrow night, Monday, 6 June 2022, and Tuesday night, 7 June 2022, please join us at the amazing and haunted Von Bar in Manhattan's Bowery at 3 Bleecker Street. Uh, We will start at 6 p.m. both nights. There'll be bespoke cocktails. There'll be ghosts. There'll be ghost stories. There'll be the most amazing World War II escape story you've never heard. And as I've mentioned, and no one's guessed this yet, we will have a live guest who may or may not actually exist. And Mary Beth, if you have time to jump on the train, we'd love to see you. Love it. It's a live guest versus a dead guest or... Um... Ooh, that, no, no clues. No clues. No, you no you got to just... Uh, maybe we'll do 20 questions at the end. But for now, uh, no, no, no. You, we, we just leave it out there. It's a, it's a live person who will be interviewed by us. And that person may or may not actually exist. Ooh, sounds Give thrilling. it some thought. Yeah. Give it some thought. And while you think about that, Mary Beth, We've selected today one of my favorite stories from Alex's book, Lessons in History, now available in the United States at all good booksellers and on the, on the interwebs. And it's the story, Mary Beth, you probably know this story, uh, of the white mouse. And uh, I picked this story because it kind of reminds me a little bit of you, Alex. Thank you very much. Lessons from History. Here we go. Chapter 35. Uh, Kiwi born, Australia bred. Uh, Nancy Wake was a free spirit from the word go. When she was 16, she ran away from home in Sydney to work as a nurse and she came here to London to train as a journalist. Uh, Nancy Wake um, worked as a foreign correspondent in Paris and uh, in Vienna and she of course saw therefore the rise of the Nazis uh, firsthand. When the Second World War broke out, Uh, Nancy Wake was living in Marseille. 
and she worked as an ambulance driver until France fell when she joined the resistance. And her work was known to the Gestapo, um, but her skillfulness in avoiding them was second to none, hence being christened uh, by the Gestapo, um, the White Mouse. Things became harder for her once the Wehrmacht occupied uh, Vichy, France, um, and Wake's network was betrayed um, by a collaborator to the Germans. She escaped from France into Spain. Um, she had married someone in the resistance uh, in the course of the war, and her husband, who was part of her network, stayed behind in France to try and carry on their work, and he was killed uh, by the Germans. Um, she reached the UK, and she joined our Special Operations Executive, uh, SOE. Um, and Sorry after- to interrupt you, Alex. Yep. Just to explain this again for our North American viewers, Mary Beth knows this well. SOE was the equivalent of the American Office of Strategic Services during World War II, which became the Central Intelligence Agency. Please proceed. Correct. Um, after training with SOE, she parachuted into Auvergne, and she was caught up in a tree in her descent. And famously, uh, she was found dangling from its branches by the resistance who'd gone to collect her. Uh, one of the reasons that I decided to write about her is from this story, because apocryphally or not, the leader of the French who'd gone to collect uh, these um, operatives parachuting in is said to have, have looked up into the tree and said, I hope all French trees bring forth such beautiful fruit. And she dangling from the tree replied entirely understandably, don't give me that French shit. (laughs) 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 Great. How do you do? Um, Also that phrase should be worked into more uh, daily conversations. Well, uh, at the risk of uh, racial, whatever. Yes. And so SOE supplied uh, and famously, of course, SOE supplied weaponry and cash uh, to the resistance networks. And so they were dropping this stuff off for distribution by wake and her team. And she coordinated targets um, for allied bombing and for allied attacks in the run-up to D-Day. So it was vital um, work. Keen to show their ability to resist the Germans, as the resistance always wanted to be able to do directly, they overreached themselves. Uh, They moved from guerrilla fighting to full-blown combat, in which they were not suited to take on the Wehrmacht. They were outnumbered, they were outgunned. Wake proved herself every bit the equal of the uh, men fighting alongside her. And in heavy fighting, they retreated over the course of three days, pitched battle. Uh, and she kept up in that battle, fighting the Germans. You know, they almost didn't sleep. They're fighting on right. the run. And then when her group needed to tell London what was going on in order to explain why the D-Day plan, pre-D-Day plans weren't um, being enacted, um, she volunteered to do a 300-mile round-trip cycle um, <laughs> to uh, to get to the nearest radio facility to report to London what was Bicycle, happening. yes. Correct. And she did that wow. successfully. And in times of relaxation, by the way, she proved herself the uh, equal of her colleagues by drinking them under the table. Uh, so she was a Cheers. Of, cheers. Cheers to the White Mouse. Uh, she was an all-rounder. Oh. I do love Givine. Great gin. So then they were joined by some Yanks, uh, some of your lot, and uh, Wake's group undertook several assaults on German convoys and and vehicles, and they successfully defended themselves from attack, including, um, so they were continuing distributing their material uh, from airdrops and constant fighting against the Germans by this point. During one of these raids, um, she killed a German with her bare hands. This is not uh, not a woman who was messing around. Important to say that uh, Wake's story is not without controversy in the history of the resistance. There were three women camp followers in in the resistance uh, group with uh, them, and they were companions of the men. 
two of them, and they were being abused by um, the resistance fighters alongside Wake, uh, she recalls. Mm. Two of them, uh, she convinced the men to release. The third, she conducted an ad hoc interrogation of, convinced herself that she was a spy for the Germans, ordered the resistance to kill her. They said, no, she said, if you don't, I'll do it myself. Oh. And uh, they said, all, all right, then we will. And they executed her. So um, no kind of fair trial. I mean, I know it was wartime, but still no kind of fair trial. It's, it's not a, a straightforward story in that regard. Anyway, her group took part in further operations against the Germans after D-Day with the Allies on the front foot and the Germans retreating, uh, uh, fighting alongside uh, and sometimes ahead of, uh, of the line and ahead of the soldiers um, as the Allied invasion carried on into southern France. And many of her comrades died alongside her. They fell, but she survived. After the war, uh, Nancy Wake remarried. She married a, an RAF and bomber pilot. She ran unsuccessfully for political office in uh, Australia several times. Uh, and then after the death of her second husband, so she outlived uh, another husband, uh, she returned to uh, the UK and she was to be found on her regular uh, bar stool at the Stafford Hotel, which is still there, uh, well into her 90s, belting down uh, gin and tonics and regaling people around her with her stories. Cheers for her gin and tonics. And my friends, may, my friends, may we all be on such bar stools on our 99th In birthday. our 90s. Hopefully uh, together. Indeed. Um, she died just shy of her 99th birthday and her ashes were scattered upon the French hills upon which she had fought for freedom. Uh, that is the story of Nancy Wake, the White Mouse. Well, that is an amazing story, as always. I always enjoy the little bit of extra twist that uh, Lessons from History includes. Uh, with the, with Nancy Wake is a well-known story, but you definitely included some things that um, at least I didn't know. And uh, <clears throat> I can't wait to get Mary Beth's expert professional commentary on that story. But I can't help but just pause for a second, Alex. If I, if I understood your telling correctly, there came a sort of a decisive moment where Nancy Wake's uh, unit all of a sudden became assisted by OSS uh, and other Americans and suddenly became much more successful. Am I, am I hearing that right? Your contribution was decisive here as it was in the rest of the war, Dan, if that's what you're seeking to elicit from me. Well, yes. not, not mine, not, <laughs> not, 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 yeah. not mine, but the brave people of the United States. Mary Beth, yes. what are your thoughts? Actually, you know, three things jumped out at me. This is a well-known story and I'd actually forgotten part of it. Um, one of the things that really resonated with me and, and your writing of it was the first time I'd heard about her being young and being distinctive. And every woman I know in the intelligence services, particularly the case officers, the, you wouldn't be familiar with this, Brian, but the pointy end of the spear, <laughs> those women, you know, are, they're unusual. My parents used to say, Mary Beth marches to the beat of a different drummer. So I think we should have a toast to women who march to the beat of a different drummer. 2,025%, Mary Beth. I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, Brian's disrespect for maths again. I mean, I could agree with you more. I could agree with you 3,000%, but for now, we'll go with 2,025. Now, let me say this. As a, 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 a rear echelon observer, although, you know, partly my rear the echelon was, was the- telescope in your case. Right, but part of it was observing from the White House. I'll just add that. However- he never mentions it normally, Mary. You must be yeah. bringing that out, Mary. He never mentions that. <laughs> it is, in my opinion, indisputably true that some of our most successful case officers in CIA history, including Mary Beth, have been women. And part of the reason for that, I think, is, you know, backwards and on high heels or whatever um, Ginger Rogers said. But also, there are so many societies that maybe even to this day, 
simply will not believe that a government would allow a woman to be in a position of such responsibility and authority that you slide under the radar. Right. That's definitely true. Although it's changing, you know, some of yeah. my, I had two big areas of success. One of them was in the Middle East. And, um, you know, you cannot, it, it, it was unimaginable, particularly in those days, mm-hmm. that um, a woman would be a spy, number one. But also, and, and even when I was in the Defense Department, one of my general friends said, it's not just that, it's now imaginable. We've seen the movies. But um, we so rarely get to engage women in yeah. the way in which women spies engage us. You're smart, you're funny, you're engaging, you know what we do, you're, um, you're charming. And that is a huge plus um, yeah. that women have. But my, my very first tour that I was super successful on was a tour that I took because uh, a supervisor said to me, well, you can't go there because they won't allow a woman to recruit them. They're such a machismo country. And of course, every woman I know, and I'm sure that um, Ms. Wake is the same way, she double, triple, quadruple downed and beat their own game. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. And proved it. Yeah. No, I think that's that's a huge part of our history and uh, our allies' history that needs to be told more. you You are, Mary Beth, our second female guest on the podcast. Uh, No plan there, just the way it happened, although we're going to bump up our numbers tomorrow and uh, Tuesday significantly. Um, And and, uh, our first female guest, uh, Dr. Nicole Fisher-Roberts, talked a lot about, even in the 90s, how in academia at a university that shall not be named, but you would recognize Mary Beth, there was still such a stereotyping of women that, for example, she was told not to wear mascara because she might not get her PhD if the men thought she was too flirty. I'm paraphrasing, Nicole. I know we'll be seeing you in New York. I screwed that up a little, but that's the gist of it. And without putting you too much on the spot, you've had many careers uh, in, in, in areas that are traditionally men-centric. How have you experienced over the last 30 years the change, hopefully, in the way women are treated? You know, when I joined CIA, um, there were no women in my particular class who were going to be case officers, zero. That's me. I mean, spies, ladies and gentlemen. Spies out, you know, out in the undercover, in the field. No women in my class were designated for for that job, although six of us thought that's why we were there. (laughs) Um, And our male counterparts with almost the exact same backgrounds uh, were slotted. So, you know, it was a problem. Um, I think we've come a long way. I think we've got a long way to go. When I was at the Department of Defense um, on track to be the first woman four-star, I can- Yeah, sorry sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Mary Beth. Talk talk about the equivalency of stars to civilian ranks, because that's probably unknown to most people. Oh, okay. So in, um, of course, I was from the policy civilian world. And of course, the, the joint staff or the military, uniform military parallels that world. And um, what we do is have equivalencies as to stars. And um, in, in those days, the assistant secretary of defense, which puts you at about, in, in, in my era, about number seven in the Pentagon was a four-star job. In fact, it was the first among equals of the four-star ranking assistant secretaries. So it would be, so it'd be, but be like being a four-star general or admiral. Four-star general, absolutely. Yeah. The, so the, when really I, the most senior rank that's not 
unusual. Five stars are very unusual, right? We don't have any five stars. Um, we haven't had one since uh, World War. World II. War Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it Eisenhower? Uh, I think also, Bradley and Marshall. I think. Too. I think I'm saying okay. Marshall. I think um, that was one of the was the last. But uh, there were some people with some real heartburn with yeah. that. You know, when I walked on base, they put the four star flag up, just like if I were a general or an admiral. But it took me um, nine months, and uh, every every thought I had that we'd actually jumped uh, the hurdles of women in these positions was disproven in that. Oh, point. really? Yeah, yeah. And it just, was brutal, brutal. And and just so our our viewers and listeners understand, this may be a little counterintuitive, but Mary Beth was appointed by George W. Bush, mm-hmm. not by one of the presidents considered to be more woke in today's parlance. Uh, and Bob Gates, right? Secretary of Defense? Yep. Secretary of Defense Bob Gates was the one who said, um, I don't understand the opposition to you. You've been doing the job for over a year and uh, we're going to push this through. And uh, they interviewed every man. I'm single, which also made it difficult. Every man I dated since the, um, since the age of 23, because of course I've been in CIA and they had the list. So here's to a, thank God, relatively short list. Oh, <laughs> you, you I don't know what my choosing that. Okay, I th- I think you mean in number, not stature, right, Mary Beth? Well, yes, but in number, in number. Thank go- thank goodness I spent a lot of time abroad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of that, so what was the what do you, what would you say were the main differences between? Um, sort of representing the government overseas as a CIA officer, because a lot of the work was undercover, but I know some of it was also doing liaison work with our allies. And when you then jumped into the civilian policy world in the Bush administration, how did that change the way your life ran with, uh, with our allies? Well, A, it was a lot less fun. There is no job out there that's more fun than being a CIA case officer, yeah. or an officer in the field. Um, Take that, FBI. Yeah. Oh, please take that DEA and FBI and NSA for that matter. Yeah. All of them, all those other posers. They are posers. But you, you let MI6 into the club, right? Well, in fact, one of my first jobs in DOD was helping the, um, the SAS build an elite unit in Afghanistan um, under my authorities. I was uh, responsible for counter narco-terrorism at the time. And um, it may or may not be the case that the Brits built a very specialized unit that was second to none in the region, frankly. And, um, and, we, but- and we should say, I think, for historical perspective and for our many viewers who were not alive then, that in that time period, in, during the Clinton administration in the 90s, Cold War's over. Everyone foolishly thought, in my opinion, there was going to be a peace dividend and we didn't have to worry about Russia or China or, you know, peace forever, right? And so our intelligence services, and I assume the British as well, we're going through kind of growing pains on now, what do we do? The Cold War's over, what do we do? And I was uh, uh, the lawyer, as you know, in charge of the Counter Narcotics Center, Crime and Narcotics Center. And that, uh, uh, was it the word lawyer or counter narcotics that, that got you? Yes. All right, fair. <laughs> fair, fair. This is, I can tell you right now, this is gonna be Alex's favorite episode ever. Oh, it's very great guest. We should but, book but, you every but, week. But, <laughs> but but if I may return to my point, uh, that was that was where the action was in those days was the war on drugs, right? It was be- really before 9-11. It was after the Cold War. And those were priorities for our governments, right? They were. Um, 
actually, when I think about the time that I dealt with you professionally as a lawyer in CIA was uh, the, the hot tub episode, but I'm just going to leave that marker down for you guys to follow up later on in your conversations. It'll be one of those mystery conversations. You might have um, to say that again. I'm not sure our audience will, will hear you. Hot tub. There was a hot tub involved. Yes, I heard it. I heard about it weeks afterwards. That's there isn't enough saying. bleach in the world for my eyes right now. <laughs> Obviously, that's a code word for a highly sensitive operation. Yeah, it must be. Well, I hope so. Yeah, we, we call our compartmented build, uh, Cheers. built-ins uh, different things. But no, I mean... Um, both the Brits, well, actually the Brits in the U.S. in particular, French, not so much. The French had turned their attention uh, somewhat to economic espionage, um, as I recall, believe it or not. Yeah. Out there no, I do believe that. Yeah. Yep. And, hey, let me um, just start, start to interrupt, but this is a really important thing that we've stumbled onto here. Uh, I believe <laughs> no, that is that is something we will not stumble into again. Um, so. Uh, uh, the United States intelligence services, I'm not sure if this is true for the UK, I think it is. Essentially, we don't do economic espionage in the sense that certainly we collect economic data and technology data, but we don't then turn around and use it to prioritize the economic benefit of our companies. And uh, most other intelligence services in the world, I'm not sure about the UK, do. And you're talking about the French. It wasn't just that they were stealing information for national security reasons, they wanted to benefit their companies, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, I don't think the UK has ever done it. I mean, we-, we I wasn't sure. We, I, I'm not aware. I mean, you, the UK, of course, is the you know, originating of gentlemen don't read gentlemen's mail. I think there is a line there, but um, not only were they stealing, but they were, um, they were uh, systematically assessing and gathering information on negotiating positions so that they could beat US deals, particularly in the defense and high-tech industry, as nascent as the latter was in those days. Right, corporate negotiations, corporate. not just negotiations between yeah. countries for corporate. trade and things like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's just an important distinction because I run into people all the time, particularly in uh, Europe, in the you know, post-Snowden area, at post-Snowden era, Trader. who say, uh, yes, post-Snowden era, who say, look, all you guys wanna do is spy on everybody so you can, uh, advantage, advantage your technology companies, you can steal people's oil, and you can, you know, become an economic empire. And that's pretty strictly prohibited for us. True. I, I actually would argue that um, if I were queen of the universe for a day, that I would maybe reconsider parts of that. You know, the, our economic stability and our economic prowess particularly in the tech sector, is now so closely interrelated and interconnected, I believe, with our national security, that perhaps we're living in, in antiquated times of yeah. these distinctions without a difference that in fact do have a difference. But that's a different podcast, perhaps. Right. And well, we can... well, it's fascinating, though. And I, I, I really appreciate your, your insights on it. I'm careful with my remarks, too. But I think in my Time as a consultant, so I've seen a little bit of that about other countries and their commercial or corporate uh, activities, as much on the bungs and uh, greasing the wheel side as, as much as on the espionage side. But yeah. uh, you definitely in big corporate uh, environments find that some countries are inclined towards that. Enough to drive me to drink. I've had a top up. So <laughs> cheers. <laughs> Well, I, I uh, Alex will know what I'm referencing. I think I, I've been involved with some uh, analyses 
of startup companies going into potential mm. other countries in which we looked at it and we decided there is absolutely no way to do business in com- country X without bribery. So we didn't go. But not every company is like that. No. Well, and also, you're, you're, there are so many small, hungry companies out there that could, even if they could navigate it, um, it would be a very short run for them because the disappearance of your intellectual property and the yeah. fact that you're yeah. going to get duplicated and run out of the market. We had a serious problem, frankly, with our, our allies drink to the Israelis. Uh, well, absolutely. Well, wait, wait, wait. Hi, hang on. Let's hear what she's going to say. I, 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 I don't need to. I was invited to drink to the Israelis. Right, sliver of democracy in the Middle East. Okay. Our friends. Done. Our friends, but from a um, hang on to your technology and your underwear with both hands, um, they can be a difficult industrial slash corporate challenge in making sure that you have any longevity in the market. We'll leave it like yeah. that. Yeah, they're, they're, they're corporate frenemies a lot of times, uh, mm. if, if I would uh, j- take the parlance of the crazy well, kids from like 20 years ago. But, you know, yeah, fair I, enough. I, I suppose if, if your business culture grows up in an environment in which you are beset on all sides, people yeah. you think you shouldn't exist, yep. you take a different position. I'm not justifying any of this. I'm just saying that, that you can see how a culture grows that, yeah. that says, you know, us first. And, and it may not be for the long term when you need business relationships to be trustworthy on a generational scale. But, you know, if you're you're being brought up to think in the very short term you know how do we get the next step yeah it's um, existential and, yeah it's, a, it's existential for your country yeah. sometimes i'm actually happy to be uh visiting israel for the first time later this year so i'm very excited you've, you've never been oh it's never a great been. country never wonderful. been wonderful. as you know i love it wonderful yeah, you're gonna people, love it. amazing yeah. people amazing amazing leaders yeah um, yeah. yeah i'm just, really looking forward to it you gotta yeah. go to jerusalem skip yep. Tel Aviv, except for partying okay all right. I'll have to get a detailed itinerary from you uh, at a later time. So look, we could we could talk to you all day long, probably part of tomorrow too. But I want to get to the Ukraine and Putin because I don't know of anyone really who has the combination of skill set, experience, and insights that you have. We've talked a lot about it on this podcast, partly in terms of you know, Alex and I are buddies. We laugh a lot. We drink a lot. We started this podcast as kind of a lighthearted thing, you know. But we always planned on tying all of our stories to current events. And all of a sudden, here we are in the middle of this, I think, and I think Alex thinks, decisive moment for the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And so we want to give our viewers insights that maybe they can't get anywhere else. So I guess uh, on a scale of zero to 10, Mary Beth, what's the chances that we uh, are not in a nuclear war by December? That we're not in a nuclear war? Phrase it any way you want. How dangerous a moment are we in? I think we're in a, a probably the most dangerous moment that we've had post World War II, maybe post 1950s with the with the Cuban Missile Crisis would 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 be up in there. I agree. And, um, I think it's much more dangerous than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think, and this is going to be a Debbie Downer because it's been so much fun. But I I think we're in a bad place in that you see the the shift in momentum right now, particularly in the East, being much more. Russian advancement. We've got summer coming, so we've got dry weather. And what they need to do is in defending themselves is going to be easier than them being on the offensive. Right. I think the the West, as 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 united and coalesced as the West is, it's not going to last. We already see cracks. Yeah. 
Yeah. And let me just say, let's start to interrupt. Let me just say for future viewers, we're recording this in early June of 2022. Uh, when, as, as I recall, in the last couple of days, the Germans and the French have, in my opinion, maybe Alex will differ with me predictably, started to talk about how really it's time to negotiate and Zelensky needs to give some territory. And I was terrified this moment would come and now it's here. I don't disagree with that. And I think it was, you know, there's a reason that Finlandization is a term used in international relations where our, our colleagues and friends yes. in Finland were forced to surrender about 10% of their country to appease um, Russia. I also agree with what you guys were saying about this probably being the most dangerous time, certainly in my lifetime. But I, you know, 62, the Cuban Missile Crisis, in the book, I tell the story of um, how a uh, a bear nearly started a nuclear war. And we've um, told that on our show. Yeah, tensions were running very high in 62. And I think that in that regard, things were exceptionally dangerous for humanity. But I think it's almost a distinction without a difference. To try and argue between these two points, you know, near existential danger and near existential danger. I mean, the Russians have, as people point out, but I don't think quite appreciate what it means, the Russians have the use of tactical and nuclear weapons in their order of battle. Yeah, Nobody they else does. They, they don't see it as a distinction. Mary Beth will correct no. me if I'm wrong. They, they don't lose uh, conventional wars. If, if they're about to lose a conventional war, they move to nuclear. And I would also, let's just put a fine point on this, uh, Mary Beth. Um, so what Alex is getting to and what the two stories we told earlier, and, and I, I implore all of our viewers to go on YouTube and find these, um, is the hair trigger problem. Right. That everyone's on a hair trigger. There, someone's going to make a mistake. Like a bear is going to climb over your fence. So talk about that, but also talk about: Do you believe Putin, without making a mistake, is likely to rationally, in his mind, decide to use tactical nuclear weapons yeah. as a strategy? You do, yeah. I do. I have to put a plug in. By the way, your story on the the missile crisis. So, Mr. Cunningham sent me some things, and I listened to some of your podcasts. If you That's listen to another podcast, it is amazing. So I highly recommend it. For Thank you very much. Thank you. It. Cheers. And I think Cheers. actually we, we did a pretty nice job of predicting what was going to happen, unfortunately. But I do think, look, there's two things. Um, number one, and, and your last question, I think, really drills down on it. I do think Putin will choose. He's already demonstrated that he will devastate an, an area so that no one can have it. If he can't have it, right. no one can have it. Miracle right. is one of them. I think Donbass and some of those regions are going to be others. So the mm -hmm. fastest way to do that, particularly given all his logistics and other problems, is a quote unquote tactical nuke, which yep. will be a, a basically a frontier between whatever the Ukraine gets to keep, assuming they'd get to keep anything, and the territories that he's carved out. So I absolutely see him doing it. And of course yeah. doing it because he doesn't lose. Uh, ground wars. He doesn't lose tactical wars and he can't afford to come home with anything less than a success. So now that we're all horrified, yeah. what is uh, what is end day plus one? So he launches a tactical nuclear weapon from, you know, Western Russia, Eastern Ukraine. Uh, presumably the allies, our side has the ability to use massive conventional force to destroy whatever launched that nuclear tactical so-called tactical nuclear weapon but now we're in world war three right so i mean my view is just to be transparent in case our viewers haven't figured it out we're going to be in world war three anyway so we better uh figure out a way to 
deter the Russians as quickly as we can in the event that horrible thing happens. But what do we do in that situation? If you're in your old job, what do you recommend? Well, two things. Stop thinking like that because all of our Chinese friends who are listening, ni hao, um, yeah. <laughs> that is what everyone is counting on. And the fact that we won't intentionally start World War III and that our leaders, yes. and particularly now and the UKs and others, will never make that decision consciously. Um, I think what it's doing is missing the middle ground, which is things we can be doing now, but also things that we can be doing in lieu of a massive retaliation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think developing those further, uh, there are a lot of things we can do now in the Black Sea, for example, they'll have the additional benefit of moving grain and other supplies, both out of the Ukraine to mitigate uh, what I believe will be a a uh, world-impacted food crisis. Yeah. And certainly as we're looking at the summer before or before fall, a fuel crisis, uh, at least for the Europeans. And I'll well, leave it general like that. How's that? Without tipping our hands per se. Put well, me in charge. <laughs> well, let's I, look, I'm hey, cheers to that. If I could, if I could wave a magic wand, I'd do it. But, but let's unpack that. So are you saying stop thinking about a massive retaliation? Are you saying stop worrying so much? Well, let me just stop, full stop. My view is our government is too worried about what we might do to provoke Vladimir Putin, and he needs to start worrying about what he could do to provoke us. So if you agree, as as it sounds like you do, um, uh, I hate to even ask because I don't want to telegraph anything, but we, we could, let me put it like this. The West proposed, Alex is a former debater, proposed, the West could not sit by passively if Vladimir Putin uses a nuclear weapon. So do you agree or disagree? Agree. Okay. So if you agree, then there's a whole range of responses. I assume we would not say we would respond in kind with a tactical nuclear weapon. I think that's my view. That's too much. But wouldn't we at least try to disable the capability on the battlefield to use that weapon again, even at the risk of escalating with Putin. Wouldn't we have to do that? No, I don't think, well, certainly we could disable the the possibility or probability of the use of that weapon on the battlefield. But I think there are other ways that you could deter um, Putin or anyone following up with a, a similar kind of activity. And that would be um, broadening one's perspective of what Putin or Russians hold most dear and and attacking those maybe in a physically distinct location. It could be- It could be the Arctic. Yep. Don't don't forget we have, um, we're all talking about physical space. There's space space, there's cyberspace. There are a lot of other places. And to A, telegraph that we're willing to retaliate and secondly, that we have options and scaled retaliation in kind. Um, third, that retaliation doesn't necessarily lead one to World War III, certainly right. eventually, but there are lots of options on the table. And fourth, that they're willing to use them, I think is critical. Yeah. And I, my own personal view is we're not sending the right signals right now. No. We're certainly not sending the right signals here in late May, early June of 2022 by saying, we are taking off the table rocket systems that hit Russia, which are ridiculous, right? Like a hand grenade could hit Russia if you're throwing it from the border. 
if you live in Alaska, where um, I can see it from my house, where the governor, yes, you can practically, if you have a good baseball arm, you could throw a grenade into Russia. Yeah, that's that strikes me. And look, I'll, I'll be transparent. I I, uh, I never voted for Trump. I work for the Biden campaign. I don't love Biden, but I did it because I didn't want Trump to have a, a, another term. But it, we're botched, right? Like our signal sending is terrible right now, isn't it? I think it is. And I think we need to look to the UK. Yeah, Alex, what are you guys doing? Come I on. Say, Alex, what are you guys on Zoom? <laughs> We've, I think our record is pretty strong. And I, it um, is. I, I compare ourselves to, I know you guys are kidding around, but you know, the German record on this is really questionable. They, yeah. They've really let themselves down. First of all, very late, an equivocal on their position, then promising supports, which they've largely not delivered. We were flying aid material to yeah. Ukraine around German airspace. Yeah. Um, now, in the medium term, it may be that the volt fast that the Germans, mixing my language, that the Germans have, have performed uh, with regard to their commitment to defense policy is going to redefine the European position in, in the military. But right now, um, they're well behind the curve. And of course, they're the most important country in the EU for some of this decision making process, notwithstanding the fact the only serious military in, in the European Union is the French and kind of half the Italians, of course. Well, you're not in, we're the, not in the EU, but right. uh, yeah. that's part of why um, Britain's continued cooperation with European powers post Brexit is important because we're one of the leading European defense um, partners. But um, I suppose the other point I was listening with real interest to your discussion about. Um, what happens in uh, in Ukraine? I was, I'm really annoyed. I can't remember who said this, but I was reading somebody's analysis this week that said Putin's basically now worked out how he can win, which is to dis utterly destroy one square on the board and then move on to the next one. And if the Ukrainians are, are smart enough not to dig in but are flexible, then they can avoid that predictable rolling uh, destruction. And they drew the comparison with the British. You know, being in the trenches and the final breakthrough that we had, you know, enormous mines underneath German lines in the First World War and, and blew up a series of mines in these uh, uh, in these tunnels and um, killed a bunch of Germans and advanced right. about three miles. And if that had been the tactic that we'd continued with, we might have um, made it to Berlin in the 1980s during the First World War. Um, so you know, there, there are there are limits to to the right. total destruction and then advance um, position. And even if there aren't limits morally, uh, there are limits in um capacity material international patience and willingness to allow it to happen and so forth and so, but from that perspective i think the putin position is destined to fail i certainly hope that it is yeah. but britain has been pretty robust to my mind throughout this process uh, i just hope that we continue to be so and we don't allow ourselves to be talked into an inverted commas more emollient position because many around us want to get back to business as usual oh. My instinct is we won't, but you know, there's a lot of pressure on. Yeah. And you know, one of the things about Britain post-Brexit is that there's a lot of politicians who want to be seen as mainstream. And when I say mainstream, they want Britain to be seen as a mainstream European country still and not too ultra and not too frontier and not too close to the Americans and so forth. Right. And one way might be to be, you know, let's just be reasonable and realize Putin's got to have something before he can back down. And I give that no shrift at all, no, at but all. I can see the pressure. Yeah, so uh, uh, I'm going to make an invitation to Mary Beth on uh, on the air here. <laughs> but the first thing they teach you in law school is don't ask a question that you don't know the answer to. But I'm planning on writing an essay 
that's going to be called The Silence of the Doves. And this is about the last 30 years of the foreign policy establishment in which we both served. Essentially, assuming that peace is broken out, we don't have to worry anymore. Mm-hmm. And to point by point rebutting that and putting out a call to arms that's not literally arms that says, what happened to being realistic about what's happening in the world? The fact that we decide to retreat from Afghanistan doesn't mean that Al Qaeda and the Taliban and ISIS are retreating. We don't get to pick when we end wars, not to get on my high horse. But Mary Beth, I'm hoping you'll co-author this with me. I'll accept. And to Alex's point, I know we were joking around, but I'm, I'm headed actually to Turkey at the end of the week via Oxford. And um, Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. You mean Cambridge, right? Sorry, I'm no, the real school, Oxford. Oxford. <laughs> All right, now we're even. It's my favorite episode also. But, um, you know, the British. Oh, hang, hang on. Okay, Alex is back. I did it on purpose. I turned off my video. I'm not talking to someone who says that about Oxford. <laughs> all right, that's a good gag that we missed it. We all missed it. We thought uh, it was a technical yes. I, I saw it disappear, but I, I didn't realize it was from, from fear. Uh, we're definitely Alex, keeping that in. Alex is, Alex is from that other trade school in the UK. But it's not other. I mean, Oxford's a complete dump. There is there's a proper <laughs> university in in my country, and you're not visiting it. But anyway, <laughs> so you're on your way to Turkey. Please proceed. My way to Turkey via, <clears throat> and um, one of the things that will come up is the the where we would be had the UK not stepped up and had it not been yeah. the steady hand on the on the tiller. I I am not optimistic, Alex, about Germany following through. It's, oh, it hasn't. It's, it's looking for ways to back down. God bless the French and Macron, but he's going in the wrong direction. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and um, if it weren't for, let's hear for the British uh, carrying the load. And let's be honest, not getting much help from American domestic politics. Not right oh, now. Well, leadership. Not right now. It's it's not good. Let's um, be fair. Let's be fair the other way. Our domestic politics aren't helping either. We're constantly distracted by prime minister being ambushed by cake and party gate and whatever you think about the the issues in a number 10 it's, it, it, when you think about the, the significance of what's happening in ukraine these are very unwelcome distractions so and by what's the happening way in american domestic politics is not uh, unique no and by the way uh and you know again we could talk for hours with mary beth but the short attention span of the western voter is exactly what Vladimir Putin is counting on. And China. And and China. China, All of our adversaries. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we now, like there was a time a month ago when every day there was an update on all the major networks of what was happening in Ukraine. Now it's it's wall to wall uh, Texas shooting, which is terrible. I mean, don't not to minimize it and not to get us into domestic politics, but he is counting on us losing our attention span and we're doing it. Oh, and you know, if that's his bet, he's going to win it because he is. So I, I, one of my gigs is reviewing the newspapers, um, late night TV in the UK. If you're lucky enough to tune in, tune in every and, Sunday night. Um, I Fridays. didn't know but they had late night TV in the UK. I thought you guys all went to bed. No, no, and we sing God save the queen at 10 o'clock and then they all switch off. Okay. <laughs> uh, the static. Yeah. Also, we have the wheel and fire. Uh, anyway, um, so I do this gig and which means that I look at all, all the papers, whether I agree with them or not. And um, my point is that my last outing on, on Friday, a couple of Fridays ago, there um, was no Ukraine on any of the front yeah. pages in the British, yeah. except one nib. I mean, that's what we took to to put it into the reel and to talk about what was happening yeah. in Ukraine. But 
you know, we are, our attention is very short and people get used to accustomed to things and they get, uh, they become uh, inured to things and they are willing to overlook terrible human suffering if it's not inverted commas news anymore. Thank God that we signed into law in the United States, the $40 billion package for Ukraine before the school shooting, which again, terrible, horrible. I mean, we're, we're distracted now. Like we're not, our eye is off the ball, isn't it MB? It is, you know, and I, again, I, I fault leadership. I mean, you, people have to know that you have to be able to walk and chew gum is my fault. At the same time. And um, we have become uh, a culture of amnesia, short-term mm-hmm. amnesia, yep. I believe. And uh, part of that is our, our just the, the way we treat ourselves with consumerism and, and, and social media, but it's, um, it's sacrificing our security. You're right. I want to say two, I, I'm conscious of time, but I want to say two things, uh, given what you just said. First, about the walk and chew gum at the same time is I thought Joel Ford was a greatly underestimated president in your, in your country. And he, he was the person accused of not being able to walk and chew gum. Right. Um, and the second thing I wanted to say was that your point about leadership and gun control. And I don't believe that that is an issue that it necess- that in your country, obviously, it's fallen on partisan lines, but it's not necessarily, I'm a conservative, it's not necessarily an issue for um, conservatives to take the position that's expected to be. One of my right. great heroes in, in life is John Howard, former Prime Minister in Australia, who after the Paul Tartha massacre in that country, some 35 dead, 20 plus injured, um, instituted enormous uh, controls on firearms in Australia, which is a country that had a lot of guns. You know, they and they were they forbid any more sales of automatic weapons and of pump action weapons, and and in two rounds of government buybacks, they took more than a million weapons. Of, you know, Australia is not that big a population, more than a million right. weapons um, out of circulation. It can be done, but the reason I mention it about leadership is that Howard said it's the 25th anniversary of that of that uh, massacre recently, and Howard said, um, who's still with us, a great great example of conservative leadership, and he looked back on it and he was invited to reflect, and he said. I took the view that if I couldn't do something about this, then I wasn't up to the job. Mm, And I I think that's the kind of leadership that you need in order to get this kind of issue resolved. Yeah, I don't disagree. I I would wonder what Australian lobbying laws are, though, because if you can't stop the hundreds of millions of dollars of flowing into the coffers of politicians, it would be great if they would do the right thing anyway. And I'm not even sure what the right thing is, to be honest. Uh, that's not my area, but the money is is overwhelming. Oh, sure, but I mean, look, Australia, he was in a governing coalition with a, a national party that was that represented almost exclusively rural districts. Australia was at that time a great deal more rural in its population than it is now. There's been more of a migration to the cities, but right. rural electorates have always wielded significant uh, power. The rural electorates had a lot of guns in them. And if you think about, you know, in buybacks alone, more than a million guns coming out of circulation, yeah. it means there were an awful lot of guns in circulation, the yeah. population at that time, yeah, about 25 yeah. million. So, you know... It's it was no mean feat, and there would have been a significant lobby for it, but it can still be done. Yeah, fair. So, Mary Beth, you're on your way to Turkey. What do you think the odds are as we speak here in late May, early June 2022 that Turkey will uh, withdraw its objection to Sweden and uh, Norway joining NATO? Um, it's always difficult to predict Erdogan. Um, who in, in many respects has stepped up uh, in, in incredible ways and in others is has all the cards um, as he usually does, particularly right. for these, his European uh, 
versus European partners. I think um, I'm optimistic. We ah. could certainly use Turkish help by opening the Black Sea and getting grain out, grain out. the humanitarian mm -hmm. corridors. Yep. And, and, and frankly, I'm just going to put it on the table. If I were Erdogan, and I'm sure he's not listening and he's thought of it already, uh, there's some F-35s that uh, Lockheed Martin def desperately yep. needs to sell. Yep. And they've got an F-16 line that remains open, but uh, very few buyers. And I'm, I'm hoping there's some creative thinking to make this worth uh, Turkey's while. Maybe a little bit of little bit of finesse on PKK issues in northern Iraq, and we ought to be able well, to pick that Yeah, if, 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 if I were a betting man, which I am, mm -hmm. uh, I would say that right now Erdogan is Joe Manchin. He, uh, he is... He is waiting for his payoff to get his vote. And I'm, by the way, I'm be, it sounds like I'm being pejorative. I'm not. More power to him. Like, this is one of the rare times. Well, I'm going to be pejorative. In, we'll do I, it. I'm gonna, so yeah. I, I think he is waiting for his payoff. He's making an objection to try and get a payoff. But I mean, yeah. if the payoff is money, that's one thing. And that's kind, that's kind of politics. The payoff may be you turn a blind eye while I paste the curds. And I that's my, that's, no, that's I'm with you. bad. I'm with, I'm, I'm with you. Look, I was with you in 2000. I'm sorry. God, I'm blanking my decades. I was with you in 1992 when uh, George H.W. Bush, who, a, a, as a general rule, I really admire, walked away from the Kurds. I'm totally with you on that. Hmm. I'm just saying he, hopefully we can find a package of incentives that will not unduly damage our allies, but will will get him on board. I, I, I'm optimistic about it. I hear you. Look, we've been in hock for you know, the use of Inserlek Airport, one of the few decent, really powerful, right. uh, decent runways and great um, military bases. And you fly a lot of sorties out of Inserlek and uh, maybe Britain does, maybe Britain doesn't. But, uh, you know, it's a very important uh, place for the Allies. Um, but there are limits and we've, um, we've got to find a way of getting the green light from Erdogan without without letting him have compromising everything i agree i totally agree now so mary beth yeah. uh again we could go on for three more hours but i have to before we sign off i have to get your view on possibly the most existential question of our time which our viewers will have anticipated by now but best bond mary beth long it depends on what I'm looking for. Ah, <laughs> oh, you Terry, you scaredy cat. Just Hang on, no, no, no. I'm, I'm going to put my marker down. Do it. I'm Connery. <sighs> Amen. Amen, sister. Oh, only because, only because I grew up with Sean Connery and used to lie in bed with my dad and watch Sean Connery. And so there's a lot of emotion. Well, you were obviously watching reruns because you're far too young to have grown up with Sean Connery. Now, but, uh, secondly, thank goodness this isn't a democracy. Yes, oh. acting wise, <laughs> Daniel Craig. Oh, oh, this is getting worse. I this love is getting Daniel worse. Craig. And we're out of time. And we're Daniel out of time. Craig. Oh, Jeremy, our producer, uh, pull the plug. I might nail crooked pieces of wood across the windows. I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that Alex likes George Lazenby better than he likes Daniel Craig. Am I right? That's that's not possible. That is definitely possible. The Lazenby episode, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is not actually a bad film. They they do a couple of weird things where they have jump scenes, uh, cut scenes in the fights, which is which plainly didn't really work. But he's a much better bond than Daniel Craig. Oh, who's your favorite, Alex? From the Roger Moore. Oh, oh. Roger Moore, obviously. Okay, Roger Moore is the best bond. Purposes, Roger Moore. There you go. Ask See? him who. Uh, hold on. Ask him who his second favorite is. What does he have to? You can't say Pierce Brosnan. No, Timothy. Worse, Dalton. worse. Uh, Timothy Dalton. 
There you go. Do you know what they call that? A, 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 they call that the cognitive dissonance. Yes, it's like possibly. I'm not dropping my actual mic. It costs too much. How can you possibly? <laughs> how can you possibly vote? Right. Only a Brit would say that. Ah, uh, how can you do it? It's not only o- only a British person, the country that produced James Bond, might take that view. I accept this. Also, listeners, check out the Techtopia podcast by Chitra Raghavan, where Alex and I were guests talking about the technology and the history and how we go forward in the future. It's going to drop. I got to start over. Also, listeners, check out Alex and I on Chitra Raghavan's great podcast, Techtopia, which dropped last Thursday. And we talk about UFOs. We talk about technology. We talk about how podcasts could be the first draft of history. It's going to be fun. Check it out. Well, you know what? I could, we could talk to Mary Beth forever, and uh, it's been and great, we, Mary Beth. We will in Thank the future. You. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you so much. A spy story. Woo-hoo. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Core, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.